Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Democrat Sir podcast. I'm here, as always, with my friend and former congressional candidate, former state representative and retired police officer and veteran Robert Asensio. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, let's 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 get into it, man. We're here today with um, longtime friend and mentor Keem Bergman, who runs is a co-founder of Bergman's Worldling, with uh, also another great person and friend, Alex Worldling, and Akeem has a storied and fantastic background. Is a top Democratic strategist, even though he'll never admit it, and uh, just fantastic guy all all around. So welcome, Akeem. Thanks for having me. Uh, always happy to always happy to help and uh, happy to be on. Akeem, can you start by? And I know we've had this conversation recently, but can you start by how you got into politics? Uh, sure. Yeah, I um, I was a uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college out of high school, and uh, I wanted to go. I grew up in Southern California. I wanted to go to the University of Southern California. And, uh, and, and loved it at the time though, my, uh, my parents were divorced. My dad started making too much money. Well, making too much money. That would have been good. He, he started making more money and, uh, and he hadn't put anything away for, for school. I had no, there were no college savings. And, uh, and I, I applied for loans and because his, his income that year was too high, I got denied. Uh, and so he had to, you know, scrounge together the, the funds to pay for my first year and said he couldn't do that after that. Um, and so in that that at that time, and I know I, you know, I, I, I don't look it, but I just turned 50 last week. Um, it was 1992. And uh, and I was uh, I was going to take a, a year at a community college and petition to get covered under my mom. Um, for, for financial aid purposes so I could qualify. She was a kind of a struggling actress. And, uh, um, and so that time, though, um, I, there was a, a speech that my dad had, uh, a speech from Bill Clinton that, that somebody had emailed him or, or actually, you know, or, or shared with him. It was, was an email at the time. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I read it uh, and I was like, man, I really like what this guy is saying. And, uh, and he's talking about, you know, expanding student loans. And that's good for me. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I I called 411. I found the, you know, the, the, the closest Clinton hand, you know, headquarters. And I went down to volunteer because I thought he was going to help me. And George Bush was talking about cutting student loans. Uh, so I got to do something about this. And, uh, and I, I just fell in love with the activity. Uh, I, my first kind of, the, the first thing they asked me to do was go register voters. Uh, and, uh, and I really enjoyed that process. Uh, started working more on the campaign, canvassing, talking to voters, and uh, you know, mobilizing Democrats to vote. And at the end of that, um, you know, in November, I mean, you know, in California, we we swept the ballot up and down. Obviously, Brooklyn won the race. We went, we elected two U.S. senators, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer, that year because Feinstein was running a special. And uh, you know, a member of Congress in my my local area, legislators. And, uh, and I met the, you know, a lot of these people and I thought, this is great. Uh, I was an athlete. I, I love the competition of it. Like you're going to work toward a cause and you're going to get to the end and you're going to win or you lose. And when you win, it's, there's going to be great benefits for a, a lot of people. So it was meaningful work. And, uh, and I just fell in love with it. Uh, and I, I wanted to be an entertainment agent, and, you know, when I was in college and I just scrapped that idea and, uh, and, and went back and, you know, worked my way back, got, got covered, you know, uh, you know, it, for, got student loans. Worked my way back to SC and uh, and and graduated with a political science degree, uh, you know, and and then was able to you know speak at my graduation about it. It was awesome. So uh, you know, but just working in campaigns during college and uh, and then you know found my way to Washington D.C. for grad school and got a job at the Democratic National Committee. Uh, and by the time I was you know 27, I was managing a huge portion of the paid communications program for Al Gore's campaign. Uh, which was uh, which was you know pretty pretty awesome. So although it didn't end the way we the way it should have ended, quite honestly. But that's a that's a story for you know that's a longer story about the Florida recount that uh, you know is you know maybe a little painful. Well, you were there, like the movie recount. Uh, you live that. Oh yeah, I couldn't watch that movie actually. I, I, I actually I, I I just I couldn't watch it because 
Uh, first of all, they gave, you know, Dennis Leary played Michael Hooley and he had hair, which was just kind of disconcerting <laughs> to me because I, I worked for for Michael. Um, but, uh, um, but you know, I was just, it was like too traumatic and too close to it. Uh, I mean, I was, I, I ran the number. I was like the numbers guy, they called me. It was, you know, I was in Jake Tapper's book. Uh, uh, and, uh, and they, uh, and I, because I was tracking all the ballots all around the state, uh, you know, and, you know, from, from day one on the recount to through the, overseas absentee ballot count and all that stuff. And man, I, I saw the, just, you know, just a travesty, uh, a democracy where, you know, the like Republican counties were counting ballots that were faxed in after election day as legitimate votes for, for George W. Bush. Uh, and then I knew I, like I, I had the, I had a model projected about when we were going to take the lead when we were doing the statewide recount before the Supreme Court came in and stopped the vote. And we were within 100 votes at the time of, uh, of, of taking the lead. And we were probably two hours away. Uh, and it was just this, this terrible. In an odd way, like there are things though that happened, which at the time, and, and there were things that happened because of that, that wouldn't have happened if Al Gore were president. But you also, you know, I was thinking the other day, like we may not have had Barack Obama uh, if Al Gore had won that election. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it, things, things kind of have a way of coming back around. You mentioned that the Republicans were receiving accounting ballots that were faxed in after the election was closed or after the, the deadline was closed. Isn't that what they're accusing Democrats are doing? It's interesting in, in, in this day and age, you know, 20 plus years later, I mean, like the, 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 those things would have exploded mid worldwide issues at the time. It was hard to get attention over those small things because, these, these, um, you know, we had these big recounts happening, the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County and all these things. There, a, lot, a lot of the focus was there in Palm and Broward uh, and Miami-Dade. And, uh, and so these things that were happening in, you know, uh, uh, you know in, in, in North Florida uh, that, that were adding like a, a dozen votes here or, you know, five votes there, nobody was paying attention to. Um, so, you know, and, and even, I don't even remember if it was referenced in the movie, but Don Van Natta did a, a, from, was a reporter for the New York times. And I worked with them on this huge expose that he did about a year after, uh, the recount, which I, I think, uh, was the sort of foundation for that movie. Um, but, uh, but he, he, he dug into it, but it's still in terms of the total, the total change in votes. Uh, I mean, you had, you had a. You had a Republican staffer sitting in the office in uh, in Seminole County, changing, you know, changing, like the, making sure that the the, the ballots were going to qualify by like filling in signatures and things like that. And then you had uh, this ballot in Duval County that was two pages, but it said vote every page. And literally right there, we lost the election because there were thousands of voters who voted for Al Gore on one page and then wrote in Al Gore on the next page because the, the presidential ballot went went across two pages, but yet it said the headline said vote every page, and those ballot those ballots were thrown out. It's crazy. Wow. Well, so Akeem, Gore Gore campaign ends, and then I probably fast forward a little bit. You end up at the DCCC working under Rahm Manuel. How was that experience? Oh, it was, it was, it was excellent because I mean, first of all, he, he's a, a tremendous strategist and a, and a great leader, uh, you know, just a smart tactician and, uh, and, you know, very focused. And it was also very lean, uh, you know, structure, uh, in terms of the organization gave us a lot of ability to have, you know, a lot of impact on our campaigns. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that year was, you know, people were fatigued, uh, with the Bush administration at the time, you know, we had been in, in the minority for, for quite a while. So, there was a real hunger uh, among the voters for change, and uh, and I think we, you know, we helped build some really focused campaigns and capitalize on that. You know, we picked up thirty seats that year and won the majority, and and the next year, you know, there were another twenty four, I think, picked up the next year. But literally, like those twenty four seats had had people believed, you know, and that was another thing that that was hard for Rom uh, to try to convince people early in that cycle, and it didn't really didn't really start to like build belief until maybe the spring or so of 2006, but uh, we were already past the recruiting phase at that point in time. And so, you know, these days, like having the, the quality of the candidate is, is means everything in terms of winning and losing, uh, you know, which is one of the reasons, you know, like I, I, yeah, I, I really love what you all are doing with Democrats serve, 
you know, and, and helping to kind of build strong quality candidates um, because we just we just didn't have strong candidates in a, in a lot of districts that we could have won in 2006. Um, but at the time, too, it, you know, it was a, it was one of the things that we did very well uh, was uh, and, and this really, you know, was a combination of ROMs uh, engagement and recruitment uh, and just the willingness of of people to step up and run. But we had Democratic veterans, people who served in the Iraq war running for office that year, which helped change the narrative a little bit uh, and, and get a lot of attention and, you know, and help some of those independent voters to, uh, you know, to understand, hey, you know, like, like these, these scare tactics that Republicans use on Democrats not being pro-military or pro-veteran, that's bogus because look at these people, you know, who, who their candidates are. You know, this is a person who is, was a combat veteran, uh, who's a Democrat running for, you know, running for office. And so, you know, that, that helped make a difference, I think. Great background. And so can you follow up what happens next? Where does your, your trajectory take you to? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I manage campaigns uh, all over the country. You know, I, uh, I went out and, uh, and, and, and managed a race that almost beat Mitch McConnell, one of the closest races he's had. That was uh, uh, my greatest regret is not, you know, being able to make that happen uh, that year because we've been stuck with that guy now for, uh, you know, it's been, geez, 15 years now since I did that. The Undertaker. <laughs> Could have taken him out then. Unfortunately, at the time, this was like pre, um, you know, internet fundraising explosion. So, uh, uh, you know, had it been, you know, six years later, uh, I, you know, my, I, my campaign would have had probably four times the amount of resources uh, to spend. At the time, we, we, McConnell outspent us almost three to one. He spent almost $30 million in that race. And he had to take out a $2 million loan to pay for TV for the last week uh, of, the, of the election. So, you know, I mean, the one thing that I think we did in that campaign was we, was we kept him occupied to an to a level that prevented him from using his dollars in other places. And Democrats won the Senate uh, that year with a supermajority. Uh, so, you know, that's when we got to 60 and uh, we're able to, you know, get through Obamacare and everything because of that. So, you know, small role in that. But, uh, but you know, went from there to, uh, to then uh, getting into uh, consulting and strategy uh, on, on, on this side. You know, I, my wife was pregnant uh, and we couldn't, I couldn't, go live somewhere for eight months at a time, which campaign managers do. And, uh, uh, and so I, I settled into managing uh, direct mail programs uh, and digital programs for candidates all over the country, which I love. And actually, hey, Robert, for background here, um, I didn't know Akeem at the time, but a good friend of ours, Brad Katz, who uh, managed that race, who Akeem hired to manage it, um, <clears throat> asked me to come out to uh, Kentucky. So I was out there for the last few weeks and through election day. Small world. In the Commonwealth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and Akeem, I want to make sure I say it on here publicly. I can't thank you enough because I, 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 you know, I wanted to hear your story. I don't know the whole story of like who Akeem is. I, I, I have to sit here now as I'm looking at you all across on the screen. I'm thinking, are you really 50 years old? You you have the you ex, you exude the experience of a hundred year old man in politics <laughs> and the calmness of a child. <laughs> but but vampires I don't age, Robert. Vampires don't age. I, that's right. This guy doesn't sleep, man. This guy's up like a pro. Every you can call Akeem any time of the day, and I don't have I haven't called. I tried not to call you too late in the night, but every time I call you, you have an answer. You're spot on. So I wanted to say thank you, man. Um, and for background, just for background, Brett, if you give me indulge me for another minute here, please. Yeah. Uh, the way I, I I'm introduced to Akeem is I, I received a call in 2016. No, I'm sorry, it was 2020 from a guy with a funny name, Akeem, and I had to go up and, and I had to look it up to see what what the name actually means in Hebrew. It's, isn't it brother? It is actually, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is. That's not that's not the reason for my name, but it, it is. Uh, yeah. It's, I had to look up your name because I get this case calling me and he's asking me if if I want some help and a person that's always leery of somebody offering you something without you knowing them I turned you down and that was a big mistake I, I made in 2020 so in 2022 I received this call again from Akeem persistent man asking you know telling me I understand you rent your you filed to run for Congress I just filed to run for Congress congressional district 28 in Florida against Carlos Jimenez 
I was a late file. We only had like last day, months. the last day of filing, right? Yes, yes. That's a whole other story, right? We can do two shows on that. But the story, story being is that I am freaking lost now. Mind you, I had already been a elected official. I had already served in the Florida House, had run one of the most competitive races in South Florida, let alone the state, let alone the region, against a guy by the name of David Rivera, former congressman. The guy ran out of ways to cheat. So I thought I knew how to campaign. So I get thrust into this race of running for Congress. And if it hadn't been for you, Akeem, we never would even get started. Because how do you get started? And that, that's, that's something that I'd like you to explain is, like your thoughts on how to get the campaigns up and running, because I know that a lot of good people are sitting on the sidelines wanting to run, but scared the shit <laughs> at the unknown. And thankfully, there are people like yourself with the smarts, the talent, the, the experience to, you know, help persons like me rebuild its democracy. So can you just talk about that a little bit about like you lessons learned and, and what people should know? What, what those that are considering to run. Absolutely. And, 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 and thank you, you know, and I, I've said this to you before, but thank you for stepping up to run. Um, you know, I mean, you, you filed on the last day and had you not, then like Jimenez would not have had to do anything at all. And, uh, and that's just, that's, that's a crime to me. If, uh, you know, leaving a, a, a Republican in a competitive seat unchallenged is, is just not something that is, uh, you know, you know, contributes to victories anywhere, quite frankly. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I, I mean, I love what I do. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I, I, I really enjoy is that building part, you know, it's like a, a campaign is like a startup company that that's only goal is market share. Um, and, and so it's a little different in that, in that regards that like people, sometimes people who have been through the process of building a business um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're thinking through, you know, long-term strategies and, 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 and everything like the, the, the simple goal of the campaign is winning market share on a certain date. You need to get more votes than your opponent or opponents. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but uh, there are a lot of other elements about it that like you have, you know, you have operational items, you have, uh, you know, all these different things that you need to build out. Um, you need to make decisions on staffing and how much overhead you want to have. But again, always thinking through like your goal is market share. You gain market share through having a good product, which is which is you, the candidate. You're the product. Um, you know, my one of my friends from Kentucky, actually, back in Kentucky, he kept saying he kept telling the candidate, you're the box of cereal. You're the box of cereal. You know, stop getting stop getting yourself into all these other things like focus on being the box of cereal. Uh, and, uh, and then, so the, so a good product, uh, which also includes the message, you know, a good, a good, you know, message and slogan to sell that product, uh, uh, but then advertising, uh, that product. And, uh, and so, you know, campaigns, you know, the general rule of thumb is to, is to build 70 to 80% of your, of your budget, you know, focused on communicating. Um, and so there's a, you know, that, that makes it, you know, it, it requires campaigns to be lean and efficient. Uh, in terms of uh, their overhead, but there's a lot to build uh, and you have to build it very quickly. Uh, so, you know, we, we, first of all, I mean, we're, we're very like, it's one of the things that is just so important about what organizations like Democrats serve uh, or Emily's List or 314 Action or, or some of these other organizations that work with candidates to help them get going, supplying them with, uh, you know, with support and information, uh, is it, it's so meaningful um, because, as you said, there are people sitting on the sidelines uh, because they don't know where to start, uh, and uh, and and so those organizations can do a lot of help. But also, you know, what what we do on the, as consultants, you know, people like myself and other colleagues, like I mean, our our our, our objective is to help people get elected. Uh, that's that's why we're here. I'm not, you know, I, I, like I have. I have my own ideals about policy objectives and things, but like I, I, I help accomplish those by getting good people into office to go do those things. And, uh, um, and, and so, you know, most, most people like myself, we don't cost anything to start. You know, it's sort of, a, it's sort of an industry that's built on spec in a way uh, where we engage with the campaign. Uh, there's no charge, there's no fee, there's nothing to engage our services. And, uh, and, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice for us as a business because, you know, like 
This is a for, for-profit business that we have salaries and other things that we need to pay for. Um, and so we need to make some revenue, but you know, it's a bit of a roll of the dice because sometimes, you know, will the, some, the, the candidate will have a budget and other times they won't. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's again about, it's about building a good competitive campaign and getting someone elected. Uh, and so that start is, uh, is, you know, we, we often, and, and I know like organizations we work with like yours and, and others, um, will have a, you know, a set of, a set of kind of items that, uh, you know, like a checklist, uh, to go through about, you know, what you need to do to get going. Um, and there are a lot of just basic mechanical, uh, items, um, but, uh, but it's also then, you know, like putting together, what is the narrative, you know, what is the reason for running, um, and, uh, and, and kind of working to qualify yourself in, in, in the, the sort of, um, three pillars that I believe makes for a compelling, uh, candidate that other people will invest in and support. And that is a candidate who has, a you know, a good story and narrative and will will connect well with the voters. So that quality of candidate we talked about before and that like, you know, the quality of the product. So that that is there's an it's an intangible, you know, not everybody. Some people want to run for office and 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 and, and, a, and depending on where they're looking to run, you know, some people they, they, they just, you know, there, there may be, you know, someone who has just has a stronger, more compelling story than they do. Um, but then the uh, you know, the second pillar is the candidate's ability and success with connecting with the, the sort of base, you know, the activists, the supported, like the, you know, the, like, in, you know, in, in our party, the democratic uh, activists, progressives, organized labor, you know, other, other institutions and, uh, and supporters that, that, that comprise the foundation of the democratic party. And, uh, and so their, their ability to connect with those folks and to activate them because, Campaigns, no matter how much money you have, you, you, it's it, it, you know campaigns are more successful when you have a groundswell of support from below uh, that is lifting up the candidate and uh, and propelling them. Um, and then uh, and then the third pillar is are, are the resources. You know, like being able to tap into the donor community and raise the resources to be able to communicate a message. Uh, and so those are the three fundamental kind of uh, pillars, I believe. And, uh, and, and they all, you know, work together and, and, you know, and I know other organizations that evaluate candidates and endorse them uh, and support them and provide, you know, uh, you know, financial contributions. Um, they, they'll tend to look at those three elements. Sometimes they'll weight one more than the other. You know, I, I'd have a, uh, you know, a, I think, there's a sort of a prevailing thought over uh, over a, f- a set of few years that the DCCC, and this isn't the thought now, but but that the DCCC was uh, kind of putting too much emphasis on the resources part of that, and that we had some candidates that had a lot of money, but but they they weren't a great quality of candidate. Uh, they weren't compelling. They didn't have a, a great narrative, or they you know flew off the handle and you know, insulted uh, the, the, you know, the Republican on TV, you know, whatever. They're just, they weren't disciplined candidates and they weren't, they, they didn't, they weren't a high level, uh, high quality candidate, but they had a lot of money. And that, the, and there, so there was a, a criticism about the organization that, that, you know, that was, that was too much emphasis on that. And I think over the last several, you know, few cycles, there's been a, a, you know, a lot more of a balance about that in terms of the national organizations approaching democratic campaigns, realizing that you need to have a, you need a good product. You need to have a good candidate. And the money uh, can will come if the race is competitive. Uh, so, so there's a uh, you know a bit more balance, which is good. Um, but you know, like as as you're building a campaign as a as a first time candidate or a first time candidate for a particular office, um, you, your your goal should be to um, fulfill those three, like kind of build from those three pillars. Um, to, to, to show why you're a good candidate and when, when why you have a compelling narrative and a compelling message to connect with, uh, with, with voters, which is something you had, uh, you know, like a, was, was a tremendous advantage of yours, Robert, when you were running. Um, and then, uh, you know, then the candidate's ability to connect with the activist, that's, that takes a lot of political work. That takes, you know, a lot of individual one-on-one meetings from the candidate to those folks, uh, a lot of phone calls reaching out, building support and advocates within that community to go 
proselytize on behalf of that candidate to others within the activist and you know labor and other organizations. Um, and then and then the resources um, that that is that just takes time uh, in for the most part. You know, and donors will invest in a candidate they feel will be successful. Um, obviously, it it helps as a candidate to already have a big network of your own. Uh, and some candidates get into a race and they have spent 20 years cultivating a network of, 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 of potential donors and relationships within their business or within the legal community or, or whatever it is, or maybe they're, you know, maybe people that they went to, went to school with uh, that they've maintained relationships with over the years and, uh, and that they have a, a network that they can go to um, as uh, you know, for what we call the sort of first level of, of donors, like your friends and family uh, that, you know, so the bigger that network is, the more money you're going to raise right out of the gate. And, you know, and as we talked about that being like the third pillar here, you know, that's, that is also a way people keep score in a, in a, in a race where they, they, they kind of gauge somebody's ability to be competitive. And if you have resources to communicate uh, a message, then, then that, you know, creates a snowball effect with other donors. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you could have the best story in the world, but if donors see, well, wait a second, I don't, you know, they're just not, they're not going to have the ability to communicate that, that makes donors hesitant to give uh, then. So that starting point is really crucial. We work with candidates to put together their list, you know, and, and you know, in very detailed order, you know, assign numbers to those people. And then it takes that candidates, just the legwork to be willing to make the calls. Uh, to, and ask those people to be supportive. You know, in organizations like yourselves, you know, like like helping to build, a, you know, and add to that network is 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 so critical as like you know sort of the a, a combination of like first and second level donors. Um, so you know, if you have the support as a candidate of, of of a particular organization that has its own donors or its own network that can supply you with support uh, or other people to call. That that is uh, a very soft, you know. I mean, you you've done call time, Robert. You know, like it's it's much easier to 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 get a contribution from somebody if there's some sort of a connection that they have to you, and you can say, "Oh, I'm endorsed by Democrat Serve." They go, "Oh, that's great. I you know I support them, and you must be great because they're supporting you." And 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 so that makes it a, a you know a, a, an easier ask versus just calling somebody and you know out of the blue because they've given to some other Democrats and asking them for money. Um, but, you know, the thing with uh, with the fundraising part of it, uh, you know, I, I like to reference the a Will Smith movie called The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, there's a great line in that film where he, he plays a, a, you know, it's a true story about a about a about a guy in San Francisco years ago who was homeless with his son and, you know, got a job at a brokerage and, uh, and turned his life around. Uh, but, you know, in that and there's a great scene there, though, when he's when he when he says he realized that because he's he's calling he's cold calling people to to, to sell stocks, uh, and he realized if he hangs up the phone, it adds you know x amount of seconds to to every phone call he makes. So if he kept the phone to his ear and he kept dialing and he just used his finger to hang up and dial, then he could make you know it, it was you know, he realized and you know, he called it it's math. Uh, and, you know the, the the more calls you make the more people you reach and the more sales he got. Uh, and so he kept the phone to his ear because he could make, you know, you know, 30% more calls or whatever uh, in a day. Uh, and so, so there's a whole science to the fundraising process uh, too, to try to make it more efficient uh, and to, you know, and to also keep the candidates, you know, again, I mean, all respect to those who do this because that's not what I do, but keep the candidates like, successful in that call time process or in that fundraising process. So it does depend on what level of race somebody's running for, how much call time they have to do. You ran for Congress. That that's, a, that's a seven figure campaign that requires a lot of call time. Some people run for city council that, you know, for a city council race in a, in a smaller district, maybe they need to, you know, they need to spend more time actually talking to voters. They need to raise enough money to be able to communicate a message to those voters. But it's a lot more face to face when you're running in a bigger race like you did, Robert. You're not going to be able to knock on all those doors because we had several hundred thousand voters, and so you you need to you know be on television and be in you know spending direct mail pieces and be in digital advertising, and that takes money. 
And I, I, and I think it's one of the hardest things that, that I've ever done. So I've been in the military, I've served in the police force. I've, I've done quite a bit of things. I was a state house rep where I was, I was able to walk through most of the district here as run for Congress. So it was a short time, but, but man, it took every bit of energy that I had of scheduling the day so that I made sure I covered seven, eight hours a day of call time and then also made the functions and then made all the calls. And that, that's where I come into Brett, right? You introduced me to Brett. Uh, and, and another piece here that was so, so important, so critical to my campaign and, and the people that are around me, people still talking about this because even though we lost, we still set, I think I think we, we, we projected the fact that you can win races if you put enough time and you got the good candidate and you got the great team and Democrat serve was part of that team and really got us up and running. And certainly with, with the fundraising, Brett, remember when you came down and you gave me the, the, the 411 on, on, on really call time, how difficult it was? And making the ask. It's, it's, <laughs> oh, my God. Why don't you share a little I, bit about that, Brett? <laughs> well, Robert, I commend you. You're the I've never seen somebody with so much resilience and unstaffed. You were making eight hours of call time happen every single day. I just don't know how not to do it. I mean, if you're going to go in and I think that's that's an important thing for the for the candidates. Tell me if you guys agree. They have to come into this with a mindset of winning and that they're going to do all that's required of them to win. You know, laziness. Eh, there's time for that after you. Well, probably not after you after you lose. <laughs> but if you win, <laughs> no, you're going to have a lot of work. And, and, and so. So, guys, why don't you guys like talk about what we face now in, in the future and, and how Democrats will continue. Well, how do we take back the House? What kind of strategies are we going to have to employ to be able to be competitive in 2024 to be able to take back the U.S. House? I think that uh, um, it's, you know, it goes back to the, the earlier conversation about the quality of candidates and all these different elements that make strong campaigns. So taking back the House uh, requires us to have very strong, compelling candidates in these competitive districts. You know, we have to be, I mean, there are 60 or 70 districts, you know, congressional districts around the country that will be, will, will, will be competitive, you know, and maybe at the end of the day, 30 or 40 of those will get a lot of resources spent on them. Uh, and, uh, and, and the resources will be spent in places where, where, where someone is seen as viable and competitive and and that you know and and that that is often determined by those you know those those three pillars I mentioned, uh, you know someone having a, a you know com communicating a really strong message and uh, and a quality of their appeal to swing voters because in any in all these districts you know there are you know maybe fifteen twenty percent maybe twenty five percent of the vote that that'll go back and forth you know that's really where the the race is won and lost um, you know and 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 especially in a presidential year when both sides, you know, on, on, on the, in terms of Democrats and Republicans, they're going to vote. So for congressional races this year, it's really about this, this middle here. And, uh, um, and, and so, you know, like organizations like yourselves, like that are, you know, focused on, on, on candidates that I think like, you know, I mean, we've worked with a lot of people who come from public service, um, you know, people who are judges and, you know, firefighters and in law enforcement, uh, uh, like yourself, Robert, and, and other and others, you know, uh, educators, people who are really connection, you know, great connections with their communities. Um, that that is compelling to a, a middle of the road voter that is looking for somebody who is. Those voters tend to look for, you know, be a, you know, they tend to be drawn to people who are less political um, because they're swing voters for a reason. They're not partisan. They don't like politics. They don't engage in it. They don't. They don't spend all their time watching Fox News or CNN. Uh, they they spend their time going about their day, uh, and then they get you know then they get political communication, uh, and then they make a decision based on who they feel most comfortable with, and uh, and and so that like the types of candidates that you're supporting are are, are tremendous candidates for for those types of races. Um, but, uh, uh, but then, you know, it's also those candidates having enough resources to communicate their own message, because that is also, a, you know, part of this, uh, this, this key, um, because when you're running for Congress, you know, it's not just, it's not just your own, you, you need to build your own campaign and you need to communicate your own message, but most successful congressional races are also getting help from outside. 
Yeah, you know, they're also they're also facing headwinds from outside. You know, we had a, a you know client of ours last year who had just millions of dollars dropped on him uh, by the Congressional Leadership Fund, the Republican Super PAC, and the NRCC, and and he he was fortunately he was successful even though he was outspent you know several to one, but uh, um, but still like you're going to face that headwind and uh, and you need that support from outside in most cases. Uh, to be competitive, and and that's where that's where you know those decisions get made on okay, who is this candidate? Um, how are they? You know, how are they really connecting with people? How are they appealing? Are they motivating the people? And are, do they have enough to you know resources to be competitive? And then and then that those resources come. So you know, I, I'm 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 encouraged by the you know new administration at the DCCC. Uh, you know, in terms of this objective, you know, I think there's smart people who are going to be there. Uh, running the operation and making decisions. Um, but, you know, like it's it's February now and uh, we have a lot of primaries that happen in March of, uh, of, of 2024. Uh, and so, you know, we need to be recruiting really strong, compelling candidates. And in some cases, there is a candidate who came really close last cycle, but but narrowly lost. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and they're a good candidate. And in some cases, there's a candidate who came close and narrowly lost, but really shouldn't be the candidate this cycle because they narrowly lost because they just weren't the most, you know, the best candidate for that race. Uh, and so I think they've got to they've got to be aggressive about recruitment and making difficult decisions, uh, and uh, and and then you know helping uh, you know invest in candidates. And I, I'm just I'm hopeful that we'll have more candidates with public service backgrounds uh, stepping up their run in primaries because. You know that that background is just so so appealing to an independent voter. And Akeem, so so we have um, obviously the the House piece, and then the the Senate side of things continues to um, I just be more and more up in the air. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that landscape? Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, you know I think there's a school of thought that uh, that we have a a good chance of winning the majority. Uh, back in the house, you know, we were, we, we, I, I think, um, you know, we, we, there were a lot of good campaigns last year and, uh, and, and I think smart decisions that helped win some races that people thought we were going to lose. Um, I think the numbers last year were, were not as, uh, I think our, our, you know, a lot of democratic polling, there was a, there was a piece about like, uh, I saw today, uh, about like, you know, there's no like deep dive postmortems being done because, you know, both sides think they did, you know, well, which I think Democrats did. Like I, I was obviously we lost the majority, which is not good. But I, I was I, I was going into Election Day thinking I'm going to be happy if we're down by 15 or 20 seats, quite frankly, given given the wins at the time. And, and it turns out that some of our data was a little bit overly conservative. Um, and I think a little bit of an overcorrection from the concern that happened two years prior when the data was overly optimistic and people lost races that they were predicted to win. Uh, so, you know, so with that respect, we, our, our, our minority is, is, is you know, the, the Republican majority, I should say, is slim right now. We don't need a lot uh, to win back the majority. And we have some good districts. You know, there's one district I was looking at, uh, you know, recently that, you know, if, if the turnout was, uh, was like 2020, uh, was, was like 2020, the, the, the Democrat would have won the race. Um, so, you know, we have those sorts of opportunities because the turnout is going to be different uh, in, in 2024 than it was in 2022. Um, but in the Senate, um, I, I think there's a, uh, you know, there's a, obviously it's, it's such a critical chamber and there's going to be a lot of investment in holding on to that majority, you know, and thankfully we're at, we're at a, a two seat majority uh, rather than, you know, being tied as we were before. Um, but uh, but I think the map is tougher uh, for us than the House map. And uh, and and so, you know, I mean, a lot of it, again, rests with the quality of the candidate. Uh, you know, we have candidates who really fit their states well in a, in a couple of the more conservative states where where Democrats are are, you know, are, are, are protecting. And, uh, you know, if those candidates are, you know, are, are, if there's if they're running for reelection, we stand a much greater chance of, of holding on to those seats. Uh, if they're not, then I, I think you know, and I'm talking more specifically about West Virginia and Montana. Uh, if if those you know if those senators are not running, then our chances of holding on to those those seats is 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 going to be tougher. Yeah, and and 
So 2024, it's a presidential, and we know that, well, after the State of the Union speech the president gave the other night, which I was very impressed, and in, in certainly how he handled the, the Republicans and the hecklers, right? And so on the Social Security mainly, um, well, more specifically. Uh, but, but how much will that play into down-ballot races? The president maybe rerunning for election. Yeah, I mean it. It, uh, it 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 certainly has an effect, you know. And and I and I think voters have, over the last couple of decades, become a bit more, uh, um, you know, maybe a bit more shrewd about uh, about how they're making decisions, uh, you know, uh, based on the party. And uh, and you've seen some challenging splits for us, quite frankly, in some in some places where. You know, uh, uh, where voters aren't, where, where like the voters in the middle of the road that we talked about before that are so critical are not just going straight down the ballot. They're not just saying, oh, I'm going to vote. I'm feeling like I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting what the Democrats are, are saying. I don't like what the Republicans are doing and I'm going to I'm going to go down the line uh, on this side, you know, or, or vice versa. You're not seeing that quite as much, uh, uh, you know, now because you have voters who are saying, well, and, and I think part of it is. Uh, you know their their opinions about their choice at the top of the ticket, um, and uh, and and so I, I I think you had a a sense in the last couple of presidential elections, which may continue again in this election, where voters are they they make a choice, and uh, and they make a choice because they don't like you know the independent voters, <clears throat> they don't like the Republican nominee, they didn't like Donald Trump. And uh, and 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 yet, you know, their choice on the other side of the ballot in 2016, they weren't enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. Some were, but uh, but it wasn't like you know the the sort of energy that we had in 2008 and 2012 with President Obama. There wasn't that like you know sort of oh I I'm for I'm for everything that person is saying that guy is saying or that woman is saying. Um, you know, it was such a it was such a brutal campaign in 2016. That it was sort of like a lesser of two evils to uh, to some of the voters, and and the same thing happened, I think, uh, uh, in 2020, and and that's where you see uh, you know quite a difference between what they were in the top of the ticket and then down the ballot in some states, not every state, you know, and this is you know, and I'll, I'll talk about sort of the state specific stuff in in a second because I think it's very germane to what happened last cycle, um, but California is an example. I do we do a lot of work in California. And um, in 2020, Gil Cisneros was a member of Congress who's now undersecretary of the, uh, you know, at the, uh, at the Department of Defense. Um, he, was a, he was a Navy veteran, tremendous guy, um, had, had won a, a very difficult and challenging race in 2018, picking up a, a congressional race seat that hadn't been, you know, represented by a Democrat ever uh, in Southern California. Uh, he lost his race in 2020. And one of the reasons he lost his race was that notion that because uh, because Joe Biden won the seat by, uh, you know, 10 or 11 points. But you had these voters who were going into the who were, were, were marking their ballot and saying, I, I'm not I definitely don't want Trump. I'm voting for Biden. You know, but I, I don't I'm not sold on everything that Biden wants to do. So I'm, I, I want I want to sort of make sure that, you know, somebody's holding him accountable. And, and so they, they kind of mark the Democrat at the top of the ticket and they go down the ballot and they're voting for the Republican. And the same thing happens in reverse in some other in some other places. Um, but uh, um, but that's that's a that's a real challenge strategically for us as, uh, as Democrats to to win in some of those places in in the in some of those uh, states that like California, New York would be another one where where it sort of connects to what just happened in 2022, because some states, Democratic turnout was abysmal. And California and New York were two of those. Uh, and we lost, you know, we, we didn't pick up any, uh, any, any house seats in California, or, or you know, we, we won, you know, we held on to one that we won in a special in New York State. But then all these other competitive districts we lost. Uh, it's because the, the, the turnout wasn't there in the midterm. It'll be there in the presidential cycle, but what we need to guard against is that is that sort of down ballot drop off uh, for the party. In some other states where uh, Democrats felt the threat in 2022, Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania are great examples of that. They felt the threat because <clears throat> there was a, a was a major race for governor, there, and there was a there was a 
you know, and also in a couple of those big races for U.S. Senate. So there was a real threat that Democrats felt, especially about their reproductive rights and other things, that they were motivated to vote and they voted. Uh, and, uh, and, and, that's, and those are the places, too, that are going to be very competitive presidential states in 2024, 20, uh, which means that there's also going to be, a, I think, another kind of psychological level of threat for those uh, swing voters. And, and, uh, and, and I think that we as Democrats need to be uh, really cognizant of, the, of, of how to communicate a message to those voters when, we're, when they're running for Congress or U.S. Senate um, that, that, is, uh, uh, that, that helps to you know, make those swing voters comfortable with them uh, and uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable with the Republican, uh, just like they're going to be uncomfortable with Donald Trump if he's the nominee. I believe, Akeem, you just laid out a strategy, right? And and the strategy that I'm hearing is one that I heard recently. Thank you, Pred, for that podcast you sent me last night. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, the strategy of finding people that although they vote against Democrats is finding the issues or communicating the issues that really are not appealing to them or, or anti their views and then bringing them over to the Democrat. But we can't do that without finding or running those type of candidates that will appeal to all. Is, is that what you're looking at? Social identity over um, persuading, right? Yes. Or over persuasion. And then social, so social identity over persuasion in addition to a find and remind strategy instead of trying to get new folks to turn out, which is easier in a presidential year than a midterm, but still a tough, tough way to go. I think that's right. The, you know, um, yeah, we need candidates who voters, you know, those, those swing voters are, are, are going to say, oh, I, that, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Because voters make, they make decisions based on an impression. You know, we tell mm-hmm. this to all of our candidates because, you know, we do, we do political communication and we're trying to, do everything that's driving toward creating this impression about our candidate and our opponent uh, and what that contrast is to make the choice easy for the voters. Uh, and so, you know, and, and the impression may be constructed by five or seven words in, in the voter's mind when they see their name on the ballot, be like, oh, that's the woman who blankety blankety blank, right? And, uh, uh, and, and then they look at the Republican, oh, that's the guy who you know, wants to do X, Y, and Z. You know, and that's what we're aiming for. Um, and uh, and so having candidates on our side that that are you know that kind of meet the qualifications and the sort of comfort of the uh, of the the swing voter, which again speaks to the sort of backgrounds that that you know Democrats serve recruits and supports, um, because it's it's a I mean for somebody for a, a swing voter to look at somebody who is an educator or a police officer or a firefighter, there's a lot more comfort in that, uh, in that identity versus, you know, some other backgrounds. And, uh, um, but, but then it's also that, that impression on the Republican. And one, one thing that we were successful in doing in the races, we were, you know, as a firm, we were, we were, you know, uh, uh, I think grateful to not lose any of our incumbents last year. And, uh, and, and, you know, and there were a lot of, there were still incumbents that lost. We, we helped pick up you know, we, we helped defeat Republicans in Michigan and Pennsylvania to flip, you know, legislative chambers and everything, which is exciting. But but holding all on to all of our incumbents was, uh, you know, I think was really, uh, you know, we were proud of. And, and in part because we we really disqualified the Republicans because there's a sense among swing voters that there's a division in the Republican Party, which there is. There's there there are some, you know, sensible, you know, I think relatively speaking, <laughs> Republicans, uh, you know, there's like the, the, the sort of kind of moderate pragmatic uh, types. And then you've got this, this growing swath of Republicans, the MAGA Republicans that are taking over the Republican Party. So there are fewer and fewer of these Republicans that are sort of identified as being like, you know, I mean, maybe somebody that, that, that people can work with. And, uh, and so where we were able to, you know, accurately uh, label those Republicans as, uh, as being out over here, you know, ideologically and, you know, MAGA types, that's where, you know, and we were, you know, we won those races and, uh, and, and, and other Democrats who, who, who defeated incumbent Republicans did the same uh, in, in, in other places. And it's because that those swing voters, they're just not comfortable with that. That's not, that's not something that, you know, even if they wanted to have a check 
on, on you know, maybe they're not enthusiastic about Joe Biden, uh, and, uh, but they're, they're just not going to be comfortable with that type of extreme ideology. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, one of our, our clients who, who faced a huge amount of spending from outside. He was an incumbent member of Congress running against a black female Republican uh, in a district with a significant black vote. And, uh, and that created a real strategic challenge. But part of what we were able to do in communicating that contrast was a vast, vast difference in terms of the priorities. We had one, you know, our, 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 our guy who was focused on the economic, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on the economic health of his district and the people who live there. Uh, and then this woman who was focused on, uh, on, a, on an anti-choice ideology you know, banning, banning abortions nationwide. Uh, and so that was the core of our communication. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so that, that works, but it starts with us having our candidates, having the right priorities and having a, you know, a, an appeal uh, across the board and, and being able to, you know, kind of meet voters where they are. Uh, and then it, and then it, and then it takes, you know, smart campaigns to, illustrate that contrast between them and uh, and the Republicans. Robert, what else did you find interesting about that podcast? We often get caught up in asking why are voters not voting when we should be asking why, what motivates them. And that goes back to the strategy that Akeem was mentioning, identity, social identity versus ideology or, or other issues. Um, I got to tell you that what I what I saw in 2022, and I'll come to the podcast in a second. What I saw was smart consultants that were helping, whether retain seats in the Democrat side or pick up a few of them. And certainly, in Florida, we we were on the latter part. We didn't, we we lost, but let's leave Florida out. Let's leave Florida out right now. Um, what I saw was that you guys, Akeem and company, were the ones that prevented a a red wave from occurring because it was all pretty much all the pundits were pointing to and all the indicators and data were pointing towards a a a red wave you know wipeout here so so i want to i want to ask you about your thoughts on doing analysis of the district to better identify how people are voting or what makes them vote what makes them vote and then how do you convince the campaigns to go with those strategies? Because most people who are, that are in this industry are pretty entrenched in those, in those ideologies that, that, you know, those playbooks, they're played out, but regardless, they're still stuck on those, on those playbooks. Yeah, well, I think it, it does, you know, the, like you mentioned the district analysis, and that's a, that's a really key part of, every, of, of where we start uh, in any race. You know, you, like even the, like the beginning of a campaign, one of the first things that we do for somebody is we take a look at at at, a, at their district, broken down geographically, demographically, um, and then project a vote. Uh, and then what is that? What is the composition of that vote? How are those folks kind of split up? And then and then looking at okay, what do we? And then what else is what else can be done in terms of uh, of, of turnout? Um, you know, who are the people left on the table? Who is you know who 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 will who do we is like kind of predicted to vote based on you know data modeling? Uh, who's predicted to vote if they get a push? Um, you know who who is just kind of you know who who do we think is not going to ever you know and then and then putting the math together you know and it's a, a you know a vote goal scenario is the term that I learned you know 25 years ago uh, when I worked at the DNC and putting these things together. But like, how do you construct your vote goal? And uh, um, and you know part of that you know a big is persuasion. Uh, as we discussed, and part of it is mobilization, adding to uh, the uh, uh, adding to the pool, and uh, and in a presidential year, that part of it is, in in, in my experience and judgment, less uh, of uh, you know less of a uh, of, of of an emphasis as the persuasion because the presidential election is going to be mobilizing a lot of people to vote. There's still you know, a, 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 a huge opportunity for mobilization and turnout within a presidential year. And, and, and there's still a need to do it. But in terms of the sort of weight uh, that, the, that the persuasion takes on more weight in a midterm election, like we just went through, the, the, the turnout has a, has a heavier weight than a, than a presidential election because 
it's just not something that that all, all, most voters pay attention to. Uh, you know, they're like very, you know, the, the presidential election brings people out that 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 never vote in anything else. Uh, and so and, and and even, you know, like uh, like taking our, ourselves out of the national uh, a bit like municipal elections. You know, we were talking before uh, we, we got started here about municipal elections in Florida. Those elections have very low turnout uh, because they happen in uh, March of an odd year or, you know, June of an odd year. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so we go and in my town here, we, we get about maybe 40%, uh, uh, turnout in a municipal cycle, which is pretty strong compared to some other places when you have 75, 80% of people voting in a presidential cycle. Uh, so, so that, that, that all factors into the strategy. And then we communicate like what we, you know, we put that together and then it's communicating with the campaign about here, you know, just based on the numbers here's where our emphasis needs to be and here's what we need to do. Uh, and then, uh, and then we can use all these, uh, all these data points that are, that are added to the voter file, you know, the, like the, you know, that the, the, the voter data that we have access to, uh, to then figure out who our best targets are for, for both the, the people to persuade and the people to mobilize. Um, and then there's a, you know, we also participate in a, an organization called the Analyst Institute, which is a, a fantastic organization that that does uh, uh, that does studies of voter communication, uh, and uh, and and you know every year there are a lot of uh, studies conducted about the efficacy of different types of voter communication, um, and and one of the things that we took from that um, from some of their uh, analysis uh, leading into last year that we employed uh, was actually. Uh, lowering the threshold of some of our mobilization communication, uh, meaning meaning like going down to people that would otherwise like that we think would never vote um, because of how they're predicted, you know, and how they're scored on the on the voter data um, that they've never voted in an election, but like that the yield uh, is is actually not that different among those types of voters than somebody who would be you know who voted in one of the last three elections. Uh, and so with with the resources, with the campaign, if the campaign has the resources to communicate with those people, they should. And I think that's something that that some campaigns have just been ignoring because they're thinking, well, it's just not efficient to communicate with that type of voter because they're they've never voted before. Um, but uh, uh, but so, you know, again, though, like I use the term resources because a lot of it comes back to what what do you have to communicate? You know, your startup company with with your goal being a market share. The more money you have it advertised, the better. But most campaigns don't have an unlimited amount of money to advertise. And so you have to make difficult strategic decisions on where the emphasis is and what to focus on. So Akeem, I mean, obviously your analysis and, and, and breakdown here is incredible. We don't want to keep you too long, but um, one kind, little bit off the beaten path question for you. Um, without naming names, what is the most bizarre happening when you've been making recruitment calls or marketing calls like what's the most bizarre call you've ever had go down boy um <laughs> i don't know you know the thing that popped into my mind and maybe it's because of all the george santos stuff um was we were talking to a candidate uh and i won't even name the state so we you know protect identities uh but but somebody who wanted to run for congress a few cycles ago and um, uh, and they, uh, they portrayed themselves as being a, a doctor, a medical professional, you know, and uh, and, you know, and we're talking to this 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 person and, and you know, they seem like, you know, like very compelling. And, you know, we're we're we're, we're you know, like considering like kind of helping them get started. And uh, um, and then, you know, we talked to, uh, you know, talked to a couple other people about them and they started to get some like kind of questions you know, that were raised. And then, uh, and then we, we, we were talking to, you know, one of our colleagues at the DCCC that year. And, uh, and she said, she said, yeah, I don't think they're a doctor. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned out that this person had been like, you know, kind of, kind of faking, uh, you know, their, their whole resume uh, that they, they, yeah, it was sort of like very Santos-like, uh, I think. And, and thankfully, like that was, 
spotted ahead of time and there was more work that was done to sort of you know verify things and, and everything and then we were like okay not not doing that and then they got talked out of running um but uh but yeah it was uh you know that was that was weird yeah lying to constituents or lying to people that you're working with or you expect to vote for you is not the way to go um you know i saw i saw that did you see that exchange did you guys see that exchange on on the floor between Mick Romney and, and Santos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He called them out, as as all members of Congress should, should do. One last question for me, for me Akeem. Um, you know, the landscape has certainly shifted, right? In From 2020, actually from 2018, 2020, and now into 2022, and now into moving into 23 and 24. Um, you know, we have the R's, a certain portion of the Republican Party the majority is certainly those that are elected um, are really, really calling for extreme measures. Uh, the culture wars are, are really going strong. Um, does that help or hurt the Democrats moving forward into um, the next cycles? It's a little convoluted because what I, what, what I give Republicans credit for, um, and not all Republicans, but like, I, I mean, there is a strategy uh, behind some of their madness that is trying to move people over here. Um, you know, on, 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 you know, in front of me, I'm moving to the right on the screen, I guess I'm moving to the left. Um, but, uh, but there, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, I mentioned the people in the middle and there's a lot of this talk that is about trying to move the center to our side. They're trying to move it to their side. And, uh, and, and something that, um, some Republicans, I, and, I, and I, I mentioned Mitch McConnell earlier, and um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, care for the man's politics, but I, I have a, uh, I do have respect for his his ability as a strategist, and uh, you know, and 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 I and I I I use this example to legislative caucuses act, actually afterwards, you know, when Barack Obama was sworn in, his approval rating at the time was in the 80s, in the high 80s. And, uh, and, and there's a, uh, you know, and, and we hear a lot from, from pollsters and from others where we have to meet voters where they are, right? And, and, there's, a, and there's, there's a concern about uh, that a lot of Democrats had um, and have had where they say, well, oh, voters aren't ready to hear that or, or they, don't wanna, they don't want us criticizing that person because that person is really popular. You know, and, and, and one particular state, and I'll, I'll just say it is New Mexico, you know, New Mexico lost the, 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 they lost the control of their state house uh, in 2014. It was a terrible turnout year. It was horrible, uh, uh, you know, year for, for Democrats here. But they lost control of the state house, and in part because Susana Martinez was governor, and she was seen as very popular. And there, there wasn't enough of a challenge to her, and there was a reticence to challenge her because she was seen as popular, uh, and, and that wouldn't be received well. And, uh, but Mitch McConnell... He, you know, Barack Obama was in the 80s, but he was smart enough to know they're going to get, they're, they'll get crushed if, uh, if he stays there. They can't let him stay at that level. Um, and so, you know, we need to just start going after him. And then they, and they started it. It was, uh, it was a, a, a political strategy, uh, but they just started hammering uh, uh, the president, no matter how popular it was, knowing that in order for them to win elections, they need the voters to be here. And, uh, and so that's part of what, you know, some Republicans are, are aiming to do with, with, with a lot of this, you know, kind of rhetoric is to try to move the center over. I'm not, I don't believe that it's having the effect that they want it to have. Though. Um, I think it's having, it's, it's, it's so far, it's had the opposite effect. I think in, in part because of the individuals who are the loudest communicators about those sorts of messages and, and, and that are kind of becoming more identified as Republicans. Marjorie Taylor Greene now is one of the most well-known Republicans in the nation. Uh, and, and she's becoming more of the poster child uh, for the Republican Party, which is a benefit to, uh, to Democrats when it comes to those voters in the middle because she is not somebody they're comfortable with or her politics. Um, so, uh, but it does take us uh, as Democrats to understand that we need to focus on where we want voters to be and when when people make the decision back to the you know market share we need to win market share on one particular day 
Uh, and, uh, and so we need voters to be where we need them to be to win that market share. Um, but we need to, you know, be, be very focused and methodical about that. And we also need to be challenging things when, uh, and to be, to try to move people over to the left, um, before it happens. Sorry, you have a, you have a visitor here, um, uh, where we move them over to the, to the left before it happens. So we, we, we can't just be, be, be kind of sitting back and saying, oh, well, we can't say that now because that's not where voters are right now. Like we need to communicate um, about, about what, you know, what, what President Biden and the administration have accomplished. You know, I mean, I, I agree with you. I thought the speech was, was very strong and very optimistic uh, and, uh, and, and very, you know, very, like, about working together. Uh, and that is what people in the middle like and want to hear. You know, they want somebody who's going to be paying attention to them. Uh, so, sorry. Do you want to introduce her or him? Uh, she's, you know, getting a little impatient here, I think. <laughs> no, I'm just, well, Akeem, a little bit of a lightning round before, before we go. Favorite book? It's right here. Hang on a second. Um, I, I read this two years ago, and I would recommend it to, to everybody. Cast. Uh, it's, it's tremendous, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, really about, you know, it's about, about race and about, uh, uh, you know, and, and kind of about the relationships between uh, cultures, but it's really strong. Nice. Favorite movie? Not recount, I take it, but. No, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, you know, the third, the first thing that popped into my mind because it was on HBO the other night is uh, Trading Places, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy classic from the early 80s. Uh, you know, it holds up pretty well. There's maybe a couple of uh, elements of it that you know, may not be accepted today. Um, but, uh, it's a, it's a great, it's a great story and, and very funny. Favorite album? U2's Joshua Tree, I'd have to say. Nice. Yeah. Every, every track through and, and I had the great opportunity to go and see that, you know, their, their, their anniversary tour where they played it, you know, uh, all the way through was awesome. It was actually my first, my very first CD that I, that I owned. Nice. Does anybody, well, actually, aren't the albums coming back, the vinyls? Or is that is that fading away now again? No, there's like a nostalgia kind of a thing uh, that's that's going on. Yeah, Akeem, do you want to for for recording purposes? Do you want to mention in case somebody wants to get a hold of you, where they can you know how they can get a hold of you, a candidate? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, our our firm is Bergman's Wordling Direct. It's uh, our, you know, we're on the web b e r g m a n n z w e r d l i n g dot com. There's a lot more that I would like to speak with Akeem and like to have other shows and hopefully you'll be back for as we move forward in, in, in the upcoming cycles and we begin to feature more candidates and discuss more races from up and down the ticket. Um, this has been another podcast from Democrat Serve. My co-host, Brett Brosder, who is the executive director of this great organization. And I'm Robert Asensio. Look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thank you so much. Have a great day.